says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as of an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God now and continue in our worship that you would just prepare us mentally, emotionally, physically, most importantly, spiritually, God, that we can remain attentive and that we can genuinely have a heart that's expectant and an ear that wants to hear what the voice of your Spirit would say to us through this portion of the Word of God. So we ask, Lord, speak by your Spirit, and we pray that you would help us to receive and hear what you're saying to us and be responsive to it. And we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, perhaps one of the most important questions for us to answer at times is, what is it that God is saying? We hear a lot of what perhaps other people are saying around us, sometimes saying to us. Sometimes we hear what our own minds or thoughts may be saying to us. But the most important thing of all is that we learn to hear what God is saying. It's such an important thing that we learn to listen to God and not the thoughts of men. Again, whether that be our own thoughts at times that may not be consistent with what God is saying or God wants, or whether that be the thoughts of other people. God is always speaking. The question really becomes, do we want to listen to what God is saying? And as we go through this portion of Scripture together, that's a great part of what our text will deal with. The backdrop, if I could just remind you, the church in Galatia, in that region, it was a group of churches in the Galatian area, Paul writes this to, were being misguided by false teaching. Though they had come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, because they had put their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, and they were saved by the grace of God as a free gift through the finished work of Jesus Christ and trusting in his finished work for them. They were enjoying relationship with God, but yet now a group of false teachers, we've talked about them as the Judaizers, have kind of infiltrated the ranks of the church and were seeking to persuade these Christians to revert back to the rituals, to the regulations of Judaism and following the Mosaic law. In fact, if you glance back with me there, just in verse 9 and 10 of our chapter, Paul says to them there, but now after you have known God, that is, you've come to know God personally in a relationship or are known by God, how is it, he says, that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements, the lesser things, to which you desire again, to be in bondage and slave to. He says, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years, making a reference to some of the aspects of the Mosaic law and the observances they would keep. Again, they were wanting to live by a religious checklist and kind of using that checklist of do's and don'ts as a way to establish or measure their spiritual lives. And this was really nothing other than what we call legalism. As we've said before, legalism is basically following a certain list of rules or requirements or maybe refraining from doing certain things as a list of things that you should refrain from, believing that in doing such and keeping that checklist that somehow it makes you become right with God or it somehow makes you more holy or more righteous than other people around you. And this is really what legalism is. And legalism only leads to devaluing the grace of God that's freely offered to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. It leads to ultimately a self-righteous attitude of the person who becomes legalistic because they think by their good works, they measure themselves as more spiritual than others, or I'm okay because I do this list of particular things. It makes me right with God. And Paul was writing this letter now with strong language to combat 
this destructive theology, kind of a cancerous theology, this aspect of legalism that was creeping in. In verse 12, as we go on now in chapter 4, he says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you, and you have not injured me at all. So notice, you can tell Paul's love here. He refers to them as brethren. Later on, he's going to call them dear children. You could tell Paul has a great love for them, and he's urging them to follow him as their founding pastor, the one who came in and established these churches there in Galatia, and he greatly cares for their spiritual welfare. So he reminds them here first, notice, how he lived among them at one point in time for their benefit and welfare. He says there in verse 12, I became like you, brethren. And what he's referring to is he became like them in the sense of that they did not have any contact really with the Mosaic law when Paul first went to them as a group of Gentile people, predominantly non-Jewish people. They had no real interaction with the Mosaic law. And Paul, understanding that upon his arrival there, having an understanding of God's grace, he began to relate to them in a way culturally where they could connect and where he would be able to lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from having to discuss or even engage things much at all to do with the law of God at all. So Paul says, look, at one time I came and I became like you to win you to Christ. And now he asks them here in verse 12, to live as he lives or to become like him. He says, now I'm asking you or urging you become like me. Well, what's Paul saying? Paul was no longer living under the obligations of the Mosaic law because he understood salvation by grace. Paul was a proponent of the gospel of grace. So he's saying, look, I urge you become like me, like I am. Live apart from the restraints of the Mosaic law. Don't let yourself get caught up in regulations. Learn to be guided by grace, Paul's saying, to be led by the spirit of God ruling on your heart rather than being ruled by a list of rules and regulations as the way to measure your spiritual life, kind of like a checklist of spirituality. And Paul understood the importance of learning how to be led by the Spirit and not controlled by a strict code of religious conduct. So he goes on here to now verse 13, refer to something that transpired when he did come among them originally. He says, verse 13, how he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, he says, you didn't despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So notice what Paul's doing here. He's recalling for them the experience they had when he first came among them as a group of people there in Galatia. And he describes, notice, how unplanned and unordinary events outside of the box, if you would, actually led to him conducting ministry among them as a people group. In verse 12 and 13 here, he's reminding them how there was a very unique way that the gospel message of grace actually reached them there in Galatia. And Paul says, it wasn't because I actually planned intentionally to come there and to do ministry. It actually was something that ended up happening as the result of an unplanned circumstance in my life that actually allowed me to then come there and bring the gospel to you. Paul reached that region with the gospel message of salvation, and they came to know Jesus Christ as the result of a personal illness and a hardship that Paul himself went through. It seems from the accounts we have in the book of Acts as well as Paul's words here in verses 13 and 14, that while Paul was ministering in that region, kind of below, south of the Galatian region there, that he contracted some kind of an illness. And we know historically that malaria was very common in that particular region where Paul was at prior to going to Galatia. And it's likely that he came down with the condition of malaria. Maybe even a few among his missionary team did. And wanting maybe to help recover in a cooler region, 
They ascended to the higher elevation, which would be the Galatian territory, wanting to be in that more moderate, cooler climate to recover why they were going through this time of illness. And as a result of that, he ends up going to the Galatian region. And actually, the result of those difficult circumstances, the illness he contracted, it creates a unique situation where Paul ends up meeting the people of Galatia, sharing the gospel of Christ with them, and they end up getting saved. In other words, he ended up doing ministry in that region, not because it was a part of his original plan. It was not Paul's plan originally to go there and do ministry, but apparently it was God's plan for those Galatian believers to come to Christ, and God allowed infirmity, God allowed a sickness, an illness, to be the very thing that drove Paul to another location to cause him ultimately to share the gospel with another group of people. I mean, Paul is being very specific there that it was actually due to a personal hardship that he ended up ministering and sharing Christ with these people. He says, verse 13, you know that it was because of. He doesn't say in spite of. He doesn't say, well, in spite of the fact that I was sick, I still pressed on to be faithful and share the gospel. He says, no, it was actually because of, that was the reason, because of my physical infirmity that I preached the gospel to you. In other words, Paul's saying it was the sickness that actually was the catalyst that gave me the open door and caused me to actually bring the gospel to you and that you were able to hear the gospel message. Paul saying, had I not got sick and I had not gone through this hardship in my situation, I would have never met you. I would have never had the opportunity perhaps, to share with you. I wasn't actually planning on communicating the gospel in that region. Paul was going to maybe move on to another territory at that time, but Paul said it's because of the suffering I went through that you had a chance to hear about the message of salvation. You know, this reminds me, it is amazing how our Lord can orchestrate wonderful opportunities, even by using things that are bad to actually end up helping people spiritually at times. God is able to orchestrate wonderful open doors to help people spiritually through things even like illness, through disease. I mean, think about the testimonies and the stories already we are beginning to hear of how many people are hearing the word of God, are tuning in to live streaming church services, how many people potentially tuned in last week on Resurrection Sunday and heard the gospel because of this virus and situations where people cannot go out of their houses and rather than having to get up the courage to step through the doors of a church, which maybe they wouldn't have done, they had enough courage and maybe they had enough desire for some hope and some answers for something in a hard time that they were willing to click and to watch in the comfort of their own home, a worship gathering, and people heard the message of salvation. And souls were saved, and God used illness in some way to get mileage that more people heard the gospel message of salvation. That's not a coincidence. That's a God instance, where God is a way to use things for his greater purposes, even bad things, even hard circumstances. Sometimes people go through a personal hardship, and through their personal hardship, a circumstance gets created, and through their hardship, they encounter people, and they meet people, and through those hardships, it doesn't just have to be illness, an open door happens for a spiritual opportunity and somebody comes to know God because of some major hardship they go through in their life and they maybe encounter someone who shares with them hope and truth in their greatest and hardest times. It's a great reminder. Sometimes even health problems can serve God's purposes. Paul is a living testimony of that here. Sometimes Health problems can serve God's plans and help solve bigger problems like the plague and cancer of sin that's destroying people's lives. I think of those that I know, blessed saints who continually find themselves with chronic illness. They're in and out of hospitals and sometimes they become like medical missionaries. And God allows through their frailty of their ongoing illness to let them as Christians keep being around doctors and nurses and technicians in the medical industry, and they become bright lights to share the gospel because of their illness, and many times God uses their illness to help solve the greater illness of spiritual cancer, sin, and death, and hell to spare people from a greater plague and a greater problem.
Well, Paul says here to them regarding this, going on in verse 14 and 15, he says, my trial which was in the flesh, he says, you didn't reject, he says, or despise, but you received me as an angel of God, even as if I was, he says, Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? He says, I bear you witness, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes, Paul says, and given them to me. So notice what Paul's doing. He's commending them with a thankful heart for how caring they were toward him during this time of personal hardship in his life. He's recalling how he came there very ill, very sick, and how the people could have very easily just kind of avoided interacting with him. They could have looked at him. Again, think of the conditions, the symptoms that come from malaria and the hardship that they could tell he was going through. And rather than help Paul, they could have tried to try to avoid all risk and looked at him and his condition. Maybe others in his team were sick too. And they could have just kind of stood away. Yet Paul says they chose compassion to be the thing that guided them in their response. And they actually stepped forward, Paul says, and offered sacrificial care. One translation renders these verses this way. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel of God or even Christ Jesus himself. He says, I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes even and given them to me if that were possible. Again, They could have only thought about their own welfare, these Galatian people, when Paul came to them very sick and very ill. They could have only thought about what was best for them and refused to interact or help with Paul while he was struggling in his health condition or his personal hardship, but they opted to do the opposite. They actually chose to be compassionate, to be loving, to be receptive towards him in his worst hours, and to do whatever they could apparently to assist him and to help him recover, to support him as needed. Paul says there in verse 15, I think you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me. I think you would have made great sacrifices even beyond what you did. And I'm sure this forged a real strong bond between Paul and these people of Galatia as they cared for him and he realized how kind and compassionate they were being when he was at his worst condition. And I think it's a good reminder for us Because sometimes in our lives, God brings across our path someone who's endured a difficulty. And maybe it's a difficulty that they didn't even cause. I'm not just saying people make bad choices and then they have all these problems because of their choices. And that's who God brings across our path. And sometimes he brings those people across our path too. But in Paul's situation, he contracted an illness. He was going through a personal hardship. He didn't cause it. It just happened to be what his experience became. He didn't cause it or bring it about. It was simply a hardship he's impacted by. And in those times when God brings somebody across our path who's been impacted by some kind of hardship and they didn't even cause it, it just came into their life, we kind of have a window of opportunity there where there is that temptation to sort of reject somebody who comes across our path like that and to kind of think, you know... I mean, that's sad, and I'll pray for that person from afar, but I don't know if I really want to get involved in that. And we get tempted to almost refuse to help them and to keep our distance because of our own concern of risk or the drain it's going to be upon us. And we have a decision to make at that point. Are we going to think about our welfare or their welfare? Well, tragically, take note, these were a group of unsafe people who did this to help Paul. If they were willing to do that for Paul and his hardship— show compassion and assistance, what should be true all the more of the Lord's servants? Those of us who have the heart of God and trust God for his power and his help and even his protection. You know, this account here kind of reminds me of the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. Encourage you to go there and read that story in Luke 10 where the man is beside the roadside and he's beaten up and he's been robbed and he's wounded. And it says the priest comes along, the religious leader, and he sees that man in that condition and he goes to the other side of the road and just stays away and doesn't even get involved. And then another one comes, a temple servant, a Levite, same thing. And they just kind of reject and avoid the whole situation. And then one comes 
the Samaritan who nobody thought would ever help out. And it says that he comes over and he's moved with compassion. He bandages up the man's wounds and he puts medicine upon him. He brings him to an inn and he tells the innkeeper, look, take care of him. I need to move on. And if his bill raises higher than what money I've given you already, when I come back, I'll pay the rest of his expenses. And Jesus says, which one of them responded rightly? The one who took compassion on the one in great hardship. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. That we should do the same, being that good Samaritan at times that God calls us to be. Well, after this powerful relational bond is formed, Paul's then concerned, as they've now become so close, why, we see in verse 16, they won't trust his heart as he's trying to speak to them some instruction and counsel to warn them spiritually. Look what he says, verse 16. He says, have I therefore, after all we've been through, he says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Again, Paul was telling them the truth very strongly in this letter about some things that they were being misguided by in their mindset. They were believing lies and they were headed down a wrong path which was going to lead them into slavery and self-harm and the current course that they were on was going to ruin the health of their spiritual condition. And so Paul says, I've got to give you the antidote. The antidote is, I need to tell you the truth. And so Paul realizes, as Jesus said, it's knowing the truth that sets people free. So Paul began to write this letter to speak the truth to them because he loved them. So he starts to challenge their error and he starts to speak the truth to try and help them to see where they were wrong. And however, apparently they started to become personally offended in their human pride as they heard the truth. And as Paul was saying, look, you're wrong and that's error. And this is what the truth is. They started to take personal offense to it, feeling as if Paul was now kind of their enemy because he was just speaking the truth to them and they didn't like to hear what he was saying. So Paul says in verse 16, I'm only trying to tell you the truth because I love you. He says, have I become your enemy now just because I'm telling you the truth? Does that make me your enemy? And I look at this and I think to myself, that's a real fitting question that still kind of plays itself out today in many of our lives and situations. You are going to find in your life, if you're someone who loves people enough, that on occasion you are willing to tell people the truth because of some error you see in their life, or if you're willing to speak the truth to people spiritually, what God's word says that is true in contrast to what is wrong and erroneous and what they're believing or thinking or in their religious lifestyle. And so you try and speak the truth to people, you're going to find that sometimes when you speak the truth to people, they may envision you like you're an enemy now. They may treat you like an enemy because you simply spoke the truth to them. Now, on the other side of that, let's evaluate our hearts. Is it possible recently someone has sought to tell you the truth about something that's wrong in your own life, and someone has sought to speak the truth to you, and you, unfortunately, have kind of treated them like an enemy now, and you've become angered and offended, and so therefore you've kind of, in offense, due to your pride, treated them like an enemy. That's not good. Just because they spoke the truth to you, the Bible says that faith for the wounds of a friend, that if someone loves you, they'll wound your spirit to tell you the truth, to help you in the bigger picture of things. And Paul's saying, look, please don't consider me an enemy. I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you the truth, he says. Verse 17, he goes on to say, they, that is the false teachers, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous, Paul says, for them. So, Paul says to them, look, let me tell you what the real agenda is of these false teachers. It's an unhealthy agenda. He says they're not out for doing what is good for you or for the church. He says they're fervently trying to just gain a following for themselves. Paul says they're pursuing you, but they don't want to help you. They just want to recruit you so they can have their own following to draw people away from the church to embrace their own teachings and ideas. You see what he says there in verse 17? He says they're zealously courting you or pursuing you, but he says it's not for good. He says they just want you to become zealous, eager for them. Paul's identifying here, just speaking the truth and exposing the false teachers, that what they were doing wasn't good for people, it was for their own good. They were individuals who, unfortunately, their main desire was just a self-serving need that they wanted to just have their own following. 
And they realized that Paul had a group of people who were following the teaching of the gospel message, and and they just were people who had their own apparent psychological need to have their own following, and they wanted their own platform to promote their ideas and to say the things that they wanted to and to have people who were kind of impressed with them and admire them and their leadership. And so they were speaking these things. Paul says, look, they're just zealous to get you not to follow the right path, But they're just zealous to get you because they want their own group of followers. And look, we need to be very careful of those particularly who don't try and win lost souls or people who are not trying to necessarily reach unreached people, but are trying to draw people away from amongst the church. That's always a red flag. Paul in Acts chapter 20 warned the church there saying that there are men who will rise up from within the church speaking perverse things to draw away followers after themselves. Beware of those kind of people when they arise, seeking to draw away people after themselves. Always be selective in who it is that you're willing to give attention to and who you're willing to follow. Paul goes on in verse 18 to say, but it is a good thing, it is good, he says, to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So notice what Paul's doing here. Paul is basically saying spiritual zeal isn't wrong. Don't misinterpret him. He's saying spiritual zeal is a wonderful thing when it's zeal for a good thing. That is when it's motivated from within by the prompting of the good work of the Holy Spirit directing your heart to do some good thing. He says it's actually good to be zealous, he says, in a good thing. That is if the Lord is at work in your heart as a believer by his Spirit, speaking to your heart and mind, directing you with desires to maybe do some good thing. Remember, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God's prepared beforehand for us to do. God has good works prepared for us to do. As we walk with him, we discover what good works he wants us to do day by day. The Bible also tells us in Philippians 2 that we're to continue to work out our salvation because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose or his good plans, what pleases him. So the Bible says there are good things God wants us to do, and so he puts these desires upon our heart that we might carry out those good things for our own benefit spiritually or to fulfill God's purposes or to help others. So what Paul's trying to convey here in verse 18 is he's saying, look, you don't always need someone telling you what's good and what's not good. You don't always need someone else telling you what's right and what's not right. You don't need a set of rules that somebody gives to you to know how to do what's good and how to follow God. He's saying, in fact, you can do good things always, he says, verse 18, even when I'm not present with you. And Paul was their spiritual leader. What Paul understood is they had the internal leading of the Holy Spirit who was ruling on their hearts internally. And Paul was saying, look, you have the greatest teacher living right inside of you. You have the greatest ruler right there within you. It is the good spirit of the living God himself who's within you can direct the will of God for your life. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he's a constant helper who lives inside the believer. And Jesus said of him, he's the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. How wonderful to know that we can learn to listen to the spirit and let him direct us from within. That we don't have to have rules and checklists or people telling us what to do. The Holy Spirit can show us what's good and he can show us what's not good as he works within us and we listen to his guidance as the voice of God within. Verse 19, Paul then says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Again, as I said, you can tell how much Paul deeply cares for these believers with sacrificial love. He kind of illustrates himself now as like a a mother loving her own children, even the children who she endured the painful labor and birthing process with, and that's his heart towards them. Again, as God's children, they had already experienced a spiritual birth process. Paul uses this analogy of giving birth here and laboring. 
They'd experience the birth process because the Bible teaches that when a person exercises their faith towards Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that they experience a spiritual birth. Jesus talked about being born again or a second birth. Just like we have a physical birth to start our physical life, there must come a time when we have a spiritual birth to start a spiritual life. And that happens when you receive the message of salvation, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, and you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, the Holy Spirit comes within and you come alive and you have a spiritual birth and you start your spiritual life. You become God's child legitimately at that point. And notice Paul indicates here the intention of God, the Father's spiritual formation process of his own children. He says here to us in verse 20, or verse 19, excuse me, he says that God's heart as he's working in his children spiritually is until Christ is formed in you. That is the heart of the Father, that by his spirit he works inside of us as his children to formulate Christ-likeness. That is to make us more like his son, Jesus, in our nature and disposition, to transform us from who we are naturally to make us more like who Jesus is. Paul says, this is the goal of the Father. This is what I'm just seeking to do as an instrument of God to help you spiritually is to see Christ's likeness be formed in you, to see it come to pass in your life. Always remember, folks, that's God's agenda. Not that we become good religious rule keepers, but that more and more we become like Jesus. More like Jesus, that his life takes form to reflect him more and more as we grow in our relationship with him. And Paul indicates here he would be willing to sacrifice greatly to do anything he could to help them in his way. He says, look, even as I already came there and labored to see the birth of your spiritual life originally, he says, I would labor in birth again, he says, until Christ is formed in you till you just grow into greater maturity. And I like how Paul here kind of pictures ministering to them. He uses a metaphor of like a woman giving birth and the great reward after she gives birth. Again, the, the labor process, the birthing process is a huge personal sacrifice, not to us as fathers, to a small degree, but to the mothers, incredibly. I've watched it three times. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of hardship and time and difficulty to obtain that end result of labor and giving birth to the child. But the reward of the joy of the child and the love of the mother is what it's all about. And Paul uses this as an analogy for ministry. He says this is what ministry is like. It's like laboring till you give birth to something spiritually. And this is a lot of times what ministry is like. You have to labor in prayer for those who aren't saved. We have to labor in effort and energy and making sacrifices and persevering and, and loving until a work of the Lord sometimes is birthed in people's lives, until it finally comes to pass. But how rewarding it is when you're willing to labor spiritually for a soul, whether it's seeing someone come to Christ and get saved or whether it's seeing believers grow into greater maturity and the life of Christ really being formed in them. And Paul wishes that this would come to pass. And he says, I, I'd love to be there with you and change my tone, he says, but I have doubts. Again, Paul recognizes that he had been quite strong in his tone, but he was being strong in his tone because he wasn't there with them. And this was a very serious matter, and he wanted to make sure that they heard his heart and he got the point through. So Paul says there in verse 20, he says, I have doubts about you. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. He says, do you not hear the law? So notice Paul asks a question to them, that they would think through the course that they're currently pursuing. It's interesting, verse 21, Paul makes mention there that they actually desired, he says, to be under the law. Why would they desire to be under the Mosaic law? Well, because that would give them a spiritual checklist. And for some reason, we kind of like checklists as people. We like to have a checklist because then we can go through and we just check off the things that we complete, and then we feel good about what we've accomplished. Well, the same is true spiritually. We kind of like in our humanity a religious and spiritual checklist because we can just kind of check off the boxes. I do this, and I did that today, and I, and I don't do this, so therefore, I feel good about myself. I must be right with God. 
I must be holy or religious or spiritual. And that checklist kind of gives us a false sense of our spirituality. And Paul says, I understand why you desire this, because then you can kind of disengage your heart and just keep a religious checklist, and your heart doesn't really have to be involved in a relationship with the Lord. But Paul says, look, I'm challenged you. Consider what you're desiring, the long-term effects of the destructive nature. He says, do you, do you really know what you're signing up for if you want to follow the Mosaic law? He says, you want to be under the law. Don't you hear what the law says? All the demands of the Mosaic law and the very fact that if you violated just one part of the law, you were guilty of the entire law and you were guilty of the punishment of the law, which was death. So Paul's saying to them, look, do you really hear what you're signing up for if you want to go live under the obligations of the Mosaic law and be rule keepers and Sabbath keepers? And he says, do you understand where that path leads? See, Paul understood that though this seemed good to them, it was just a subtle deception of the devil. You know, if the devil can't get us to backslide into sin, He'll get us to front slide into legalism, where we allow rituals and our own little rules and lists of our own kind of laws that we establish spiritually to make us just legalistic and self-righteous and kind of cold-hearted, and the relationship with God diminishes, and spiritual life's just about all our little checklists that make us think that we're doing well when really we're actually taking the bait of the devil to slide into legalism and we fail to see the destructive condition that's going to bring to our spiritual life. And so Paul here is cautioning them about this. Now as he comes to us here in verse 22 and through the remainder of the chapter, Paul's going to use Old Testament passages now to illustrate and kind of drive home his point of concern. Look at me in verse 22. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of the bondwoman, the other of the free woman, the one of Hagar, the other of Sarah, his wife, the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, that was Ishmael, it says, he was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, the efforts of the flesh. He who was of the free woman, his wife Sarah, came through promise, that is through God's promise. Now, it helps in this section to be familiar with Genesis chapters 15 through 22. It gives some understanding of what Paul is referring to. You notice Paul just kind of assumes they're very familiar with this portion of Scripture. He almost presupposes he knows exact, they know exactly what he's talking about, so he doesn't have to give a whole lot of explanation here. Let me, if I can, just briefly summarize, if I can to the best of my ability in brief, what Paul's referring to and why he's trying to use this as an analogy in the midst of these things. Remember, God called Abraham, and when God called Abraham, though Abraham and Sarah were barren and they weren't conceiving children, God told Abraham as a promise that he was going to miraculously give a child ultimately to Abraham. God first gave that promise to Abraham when he was already quite up there in age, him and Sarah, and for a while, year upon year, 10 years pass by, they're not conceiving a child. So ultimately, it tells us in Genesis chapter 16 that Sarah contrives the idea in her mind that maybe the problem is that God gave a promise, but maybe they need to do something to bring about God's promise. Maybe God needs a little assistance, and he wants us to kind of help him out in the process. So she says, what I think you should do is this. Why don't you go in and lay with my maidservant, Hagar, conceive a child through her, and we'll take that child as the heir that God promised to us, and we'll make that child the inheritor of the promises that God gave to us. Abraham, unfortunately, on one occasion, made the mistake of listening to his wife in that matter, and he went in, him and Hagar, the maidservant, conceived a child, Ishmael, and some time went by, more complications happened, more and more years passed. Ultimately, it came to a certain point where God is speaking to Abraham. Abraham said, look, is Ishmael workable, acceptable? And God said, no, listen, I promised that I was going to give you a child through Sarah. Now, at this point, Abraham and Sarah are in the latter stages of life. 90, 100 years old, they're unable to physically conceive a child. It's an impossibility, but God said, I promised that through your wife, this child would come. Now, 
Ultimately, we know what happens. At the set time and the appointed hour, God gives conception to Sarah through an intervention of God's power. She conceives Isaac, the child of promise, and this is the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, these two children become a picture we're going to see because Ishmael was a picture of life in the flesh. The efforts of the flesh to try and bring about God's purposes, trying to produce yourself by human effort, born of the flesh. That's what Ishmael was, through the efforts of their flesh to do God's things, to do God's promises, to bring about God's plans. Isaac becomes a picture of God's designated way where God is the one fulfilling a promise. And it's all God's power that does it. And God fulfills the promise by his mighty power And it came by them trusting God's promise and receiving the promise by God's power coming to pass through their faith, believing in what God had promised to them. Now, verse 24 tells us these things, notice the two children and what happened. These things are symbolic. In other words, Paul sees in the historical events a spiritual illustration whereby God was revealing truths that can be applied to our lives spiritually as well. As you look at the natural events and circumstances of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael, who was a work of his own flesh, and then Isaac, who was a work of the Spirit of God miraculously through his faith in God's promise, Their two lies and those stories represent spiritual lessons, figuratively or symbolically. They represent, of course, the law and grace. They represent living by works as compared to living by faith. They represent the contrasts of life by the flesh compared to life by the Spirit. You see what he goes on to say, verse 24? For these are the two covenants. They picture the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is the present physical Jerusalem and is bondage with her children. Verse 26, but Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Unless we get bogged down in the technicalities of what Paul is trying to convey here, let me try and help put some light upon what Paul's saying. He's saying Abraham's two relationships with Hagar and Sarah and the two children that were produced, these two separate sons, were representative, he says, of the two covenants. What two covenants? Well, of the Mosaic covenant, which was a covenant based upon human effort to obey God's laws, and it was dependent upon man's efforts to keep the law. And the other covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which was based in grace, where God gave a promise and he told Abraham, if you believe that promise, I will fulfill it by my supernatural power. Hagar, of course, represents Mount Sinai, he says here, or the law, the place where the Mosaic law was given. And he says it represents the Mosaic covenant. The relationship with Hagar compares, Paul says, to the earthly Jerusalem, he references in verse 25. He says it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, the physical Jerusalem at that time. And the people in the physical Jerusalem were still observing Judaism, which was keeping of the Mosaic law and the customs and the rituals. And Paul says those who were maintaining Judaism, the works and the rituals, are living in religious bondage still. They're stuck in the bondage of the works of their flesh because no effort or attempt of the flesh can make a person right with God. But Paul says, however, the second birth, the birth of the child of promise through Isaac, he says, that illustrates the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant where God gives a gift by grace and he performs the promise by his power. He says this corresponds, verse 26, with the Jerusalem which is above, the eternal Jerusalem which is a place of freedom, which is the mother of us all. That is the the mother of those who are spiritually alive because of the power of God's work and his spirit in us because we simply believed a promise, the promise of salvation, even as Isaac was the child received through promise. What Paul's wanting to say to them as Christians, our spiritual lives are not to be lived by the efforts of our own flesh, striving to be good, working hard to maintain a standard, but we're to live in subjection to a king of a spiritual realm, a realm which is above, of the 
new Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem, he references in verse 26 there, that heavenly Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, describe this heavenly Jerusalem, this eternal dwelling place. And he says, we're to live according to the standards of the citizenship above, which is a standard of freedom. Freedom from rules and regulations where we don't strive and no one in heaven in the eternal realm is striving. And the reason why is because everybody knows only worthy is the lamb. No one is worthy and we're trusting in his finished work alone. And we've learned to inherit by freedom the gift of grace that's been offered to us through what Christ did. Paul says, verse 27, for it is written, quoting Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, because the womb was barren. For the desolate now has more children than she who has a husband. So Paul uses scripture here, an Old Testament quote from Isaiah 54, which was a prophecy that was basically speaking about how when Israel was in a barren condition, And they were unable in their weakness, in the condition they were in, and powerless to revitalize their nation, how God was going to intervene graciously, and he was going to revitalize them by a work of his spirit and bring them back to life and give life in a way that they could not do for themselves. They could not change their own condition, but God's spirit was going to change their condition. And it was going to be a work of God not a work of their own ability that they performed. Paul says, verse 28, making the application, now now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we also are children of promise. We are those who are God's children because we believe the promises of God through our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way. He says, verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was according to the Spirit, Even so, it now is, he says. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Quoting again, an Old Testament passage, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman, it says, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, what Paul's referring to here, verse 29, he refers to that traditional weaning ceremony, and the book of Genesis records this happening, where they were weaning their son Isaac, the child of promise, the legitimate child that God gave to them miraculously by his promise. And as Isaac was being weaned around two and three years old, Ishmael, his half-brother at that time, the child born through Hagar, the maidservant, as a teenager... Isaac was being mocked and ridiculed by his older brother, Ishmael. And basically, Ishmael was despising what Isaac represented. It says there, verse 29, the child born according to flesh was mocking or persecuting that which was born according to the spirit. And Paul says, it's the same way even now. The life of the flesh was mocking that which was the offspring and life of the spirit. And Paul says, it's the same way now, again, as an analogy or symbolic thing. He says, the flesh will always mock the life of the spirit. Even as Ishmael was mocking and ridiculing Isaac, he says, in the same way, the flesh will always mock and ridicule the things of the life of the spirit. And I think we all know that. The religious person who wants to offer to God their good works and say, I'm good enough, I'm okay, I do good works, the reason they're doing that is because their sinful flesh is mocking the reality that, no, your good works are not good enough, you need the finished work of Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit within you to make you right with God. But their flesh mocks and resists that, and their logic won't accept it the same for us as believers. I don't know how many times you've experienced where I want to live in the spirit and be open to the realm of the spirit, but yet my flesh kind of mocks and resists it within me. And my flesh makes me struggle with being open to the realm of the spirit at times and really just believing what God can do in the power of his spirit. And so even so now, this continues to still go on. So Paul therefore says, What happened in light of that? What does the scripture say? He quotes from Genesis 21, where it tells us that 
Sarah said to Abraham, listen, you need to cast out and remove that bondwoman from our family and get rid of her son because he is going to stand in the way of the promises of God through our son Isaac, who was the child of promise through the Spirit. Now, here's an interesting thing. Before Abraham had Isaac, Abraham tried to offer to God Ishmael as the solution to the promises of God. We're told in Genesis chapter 17 that Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And then God said to Abraham, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. In other words, important to see, God would not accept the work of Abraham's flesh. He tried to say, here, God, can't you just take the work of my flesh? Isn't Ishmael good enough? And God said, I can't receive the work of your flesh. No, it's not good enough. In fact, God later would say, I don't even acknowledge the work of your flesh. When God tells Abraham to offer Isaac in Genesis 22 later on, he says, take now your son, your only son. Well, it wasn't really his only son. Ishmael was alive too. But God only acknowledges the work of his spirit. He doesn't acknowledge the work of our flesh. And the same for our lives personally. God won't receive the energy and efforts of our own good works and flesh, the attempts. God will not receive those things. He will only acknowledge and receive the work of his spirit within us that he himself is the one that accomplishes. That's why when the mocking of Isaac was happening, Sarah said, look, you need to put away the bondwoman and her son of the flesh because it's going to stand in the way of the work of God through our son Isaac, who's the work of the spirit. Yet Abraham was struggling with that. His thoughts and desires were wrestling. And you know what? What Sarah was then saying was right. The life of the flesh needed to be removed because it would hinder the work of God's spirit in their family. And the same is true in our lives personally. Please understand, we have to be careful to make sure that we put away our fleshly endeavors in regards to the spiritual life. Because the things of the flesh will only obstruct the things of the Spirit. And so we have to make a conscious decision at times to put away the efforts of our flesh and to fully depend upon life in the Spirit and trust that by faith alone. Now, before we conclude, notice with me, if you would, in verse 30, this beautiful question. How did Paul resolve all this? He brings them to the Scripture to handle their struggle. Look at the beginning of verse 30. Paul says, in light of all these things, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Look, that is a phrase worth underlining, highlighting in your Bible. It's a great question for the resolution of any matter in life. It's a great question as well for any situation regarding the spiritual life. Nevertheless, despite how you think, despite how you feel, despite what your human reasoning is saying, what does the Scripture say? Because, see, the Scripture is God's Word, and it's the final authority over all human feeling, over all logic and reason, even over all religious ideas that have been conveyed to us. But what does the Scripture say? What does God say? Not what do you feel, what do you think, what other people say, what does God say? Because God's word, the scripture, is the most clear and valid way to know what God wants. Look, folks, we are free to all listen to God ourselves, and the best way to do that is to ask the question in verse 30. What does the scripture say? If you're trying to sort something out, always ask yourself, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? If you're trying to reason out, well, what does this mean to be a Christian? Do I have to be a Christian? i, I got to get saved. What's this born? What does the Scripture say? Not what is your religious upbringing, not what are your thoughts and logic. What does the Scripture say? The Scripture says we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. It's a gift of God. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord.